Hello, fellow foodies. This is Dr. Quave with Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. And welcome, welcome to season three of the show. I'm so excited that we're going into our third year with lots of great um, episodes and interviews lined up for this season. And I wanted to kick off this brand new year with one of my favorite subjects that's near and dear to my heart, and that's the subject of herbaria. And when I saw that Dr. Barbara Tears had a new book coming out, it's entitled Herbarium, The Quest to Preserve and Classify the World's Plants, I just knew we had to have her on the show um, to kick off the season. So let me tell you a bit about our guest. Um, Barbara Tears is a Patricia Holmgren director of the William and Linda Steer Herbarium at the New York Botanical Garden. She's also president of the American Society of Plant Taxonomists, as well as the past president of the Society for the Preservation of Natural History Collections. Her particular interest in the application of information technology to herbarium management and her passion for increasing the scientific community's access to specimen-based data has led to the development of the CV Star Virtual Herbarium, which is a searchable database of the steer herbarium's digitized specimens. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Barbara. It's great to see you. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Great. Well, I think the last time I saw you, it was at um, one of the iDigBio conferences right. in Florida. And um, that initiative just really was a tremendous help to, to me as a curator of a very small herbarium, a small collection of 20,000 specimens. Um, but I know that you've been involved in, in, in this initiative and also in your own work to digitize the collections in New York. Um, so I, I definitely want to get into the digitization aspect of herbaria. Um, but first, I thought maybe we should start with just some background on what is an herbarium. I always get asked this question. People envision lush tropical greenhouses that I must have hidden somewhere in the case at all, right? No. I mean, the most unromantic way to describe a herbarium is it's a bunch of steel cabinets full of dead plants. But that's <laughs> not really how we like to describe it. What it is, is basically a plant record, I mean, a, a preserved record of the vegetation of the earth. And it may be small in scale, it may preserve only a, a small portion, part of that history, or it may preserve centuries worth of, of that knowledge. Every single specimen is a point in time and, and marks a real tangible example of an organism that was living in a particular place um, and further than that, we also have information about who collected the specimens and when, and all of that information makes a very rich source that tells us not only about the history of plants on earth, but about the people who collected them and the science that was done uh, with these specimens as a basis. That's great. Well, how are herbaria actually used in the sciences and has their use or even their creation changed over time? Yeah. So the very first herbarium, which dates from the um, 1500s in, in Italy, um, was developed as a mechanism to teach medical students. So a man named Luca Ghini, we think, formed the first herbarium. He was a, a teacher at the University of Bologna, medical school teacher, and he, um, he wanted to have a way 
uh, reference. He wanted a reference for his students who were learning about Materia Medica, plants that are used for medicine, to, um, to have a reference to the actual plant material so they could learn to identify those plants that would be efficacious for treatments. Um, and that was the main reason um, the herbarium was a, a reference, just like a reference book, but it was one that he could continue to add to and that was easier to put together, really, than, than, than writing and illustrating a book. Um, and then um, that tradition, he had a, he didn't publish much and we don't have his herbarium anymore, but he was a, a, a an amazing teacher and among the things he taught his many students was the herbarium tradition, and it caught on and spread. And um, it really, in the time of Linnaeus, this was a you know Linnaeus who really gave us our system for for naming you know organisms, mm -hmm. and gave, also gave an early system for classifying. He was really the one who kind of formalized the institutionalization of herbaria as a tool um, for to go hand in hand with the study of um, the earth's vegetation. So um, what the two main types of studies that the herbaria have been traditionally used for are what we call floras, which is an account of all the plants in a given area, whether it's a county or a town or maybe a, 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 a whole country or even a continent. Or in the other type, it's what we call a monograph, which is an accounting of an entire plant group. Um, so that you you basically for any plant group, say cacti, for example, the cactus family, you want to have a, a publication that tells about every single different cactus and generally how it's related to one another. So that's traditionally how herbaria have been used and also just as a tool for identification. People who go out and collect a plant, whether they are botanists, they might be land managers, they might be private citizens. They come across a plant they don't recognize, they collect it and preserve it, and then they can compare it just specimen to specimen. So that's the traditional use. It's all about identifying plants. Um, however, more recently, we found that we can actually use that plant material itself, uh, the preserved plant material, to give us clue, a lot of clues about the organism. Plants um, are very good at concentrating heavy metals, and they take them up. They aren't harmful to them the way they are with animals, but they they do concentrate them. And we've been able to determine that um, that heavy metal uh, concentration in plants can give us an idea of what the environment was like at the time. An interesting study done out of Brown University showed very close correlation between heavy metals in plants and sort of the rise and then fall of heavy industrialization in that area. Um, also, uh, for the last 20 or 30 years, we've been able to extract DNA from preserved plant specimens. And this tells us not only information that's been very powerful in understanding, reconstructing kind of the genealogy of all plants, um, allowing us to incorporate species that that don't exist anymore, that we can use the DNA from material species that have gone extinct to see where they fit into the tree of life. And more recently, with more sophisticated DNA analysis techniques, we can actually begin to understand what, what particular traits a plant has, what, 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 you know, what functions, what, what traits it has that help it adapt to its environment, would help, would help it um, succeed in times of drought or um, of other sorts of stress. So we can get quite a lot of information from the specimens. 
Then when you combine them with, when you digitize them, of course, you have huge quantities of specimens that you can use in the aggregate, which can help you determine like broad patterns of how plants and their distribution have changed over time. Yeah. So access to these collections is vastly different today than it would have been even 50 yes. years ago. That's, that's fantastic. Well, I'm, I've always been fascinated with this intertwining relationship between botany and medicine. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned this before that herbaria were once, you know, originally used as a, as a teaching tool um, for students, for medical students. And I know there's a, there's a long and robust history of, of different um, kind of, uh, botanical gardens that were used um, for medical training. And even the first public botanical garden um, in the U.S. was created by a physician um, that was eager to use it in his training. It's, uh, it's uh, Dr. Hasek. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's right where Rockefeller Center stands today, of course. And right. there's a beautiful uh, book by that by Victoria Johnson um, on his life. Yeah. Um, but I was wondering if, if you could expand a bit more on this relationship between herbaria and medical history because before herbaria came into the scene people were documenting the uses of plants but in in drawing forms so you have all of these copies of historic texts going back to the time of Dioscorides that document how plants were being used as medicine but what were some of the limitations in having illustrations rather than physical samples right well a lot of it was the quality of the illustrations um uh the especially for the sort of average person. You know, kings and queens might have, um, their royal homes might have beautiful hand-illustrated texts done by the finest artists who could, who could give just stunning, you know, representations of plants. But those weren't the sort of books that the average physician or botanist had at their disposal. Um, books were hard to come by, and the illustrations tended to be more crude. And if you look at the herbals of the day, even though they're quite beautiful um, and very artistic, they they don't have the kind of detail that would really allow you to tell one you know species from another. The difference between species may be very subtle. It might just be a bit of leaf shape or a little subtle variation in color. And it was just not you know, not with technology of the time that just wasn't able, they weren't able to, um, to convey that. Now, I mean, they still had descriptions, um, but again, in context, it, it, it took a long time for a standard vocabulary to develop so that you knew exactly what someone was talking about when they described it. So, um, so the herbarium specimen was the actual thing. And if the specimens were pressed well, and maintained and didn't become moldy or eaten by bugs, a century or two later, they're just as useful for seeing those key features as they were the day they were collected. It's amazing. And they were incredibly important to exploration as well. I'm thinking yes. of some of the collections. One, one of the beautiful things I, I really enjoyed in your book, and by the way, that was my vacation reading over the holidays. <laughs> Sitting at the beach, I had my beautiful herbarium book open. It was so rich in detail and in stories and um, really, really fabulous. So I definitely encourage the listeners to uh, grab a copy of herbarium. You won't regret it. Um, one of the stories that interested me was um, one recounting some of the Spanish and Portuguese expeditions and how how some of these collections even became lost and then were later recovered. And there's this there's this kind of pattern of these amazing intensive collections happening. Um, but can you tell us give us some examples of those? Sure. I mean, it, this is a recurring theme. 
Mm -hmm. that so much effort went into the collection and it was often done with, you know, great fanfare. And, you know, it's also extremely hard work um, Mm -hmm. to make all those collections. You have to, first of all, there was the trip wherever you were going. It was often fraught with all kinds of difficulty and many people didn't survive. There was almost in, in the classic sea voyage expedition of the 19th century and 18th century, there was almost always a tension between the ship the what the ship captain and crew wanted to accomplish and what the naturalist wanted to accomplish. The naturalist often had to fight for every t- bit of time mm-hmm. that they could go collecting. And then they had very little space to process their material when they got back. Um, and uh, they, um, they, they went on very, to very dangerous places. Many lost their lives in the pursuit of that. And it, even though it was well recognized and appreciated that specimens would come back and would be new, uh, new novelties and so forth, it's just amazing how many times the specimens themselves were sort of, um, you know, ignored <laughs> afterwards. And I can imagine how it happened that they were, they really couldn't put names on all of them. They didn't recognize them. They might have gone through and picked out a few of the prettiest or the most you know, outstanding in some way, and the rest just got put aside. But in some cases, there was really more of a kind of a a different tinge to it. In the case you mentioned um, in uh, with the Spanish government and the specimens of Colombia, a man named um, uh, um, Jose Celestino Mutis was a Spanish physician who spent his whole career in what is now Colombia. Um, it's a much larger area um, called Colombia in those days. Um, but he he not only spent 20 years with a team documenting the, the flora, but also teaching a whole host of local people to illustrate the plants, to write the flora, and to amass truly magnificent um, uh, specimens and illustrations of them. It just so happened, and it's not really clear whether this was a coincidence or whether there's whether he, it reflects his political leanings. But many of the people who were and worked with him in his in his Casa de Botanica um, ended up being part of the Colombian Revolution in one way or another. Even his own nephew was um, was never was arrested and uh, and never I guess wasn't considered to be a major force in the revolution, but was definitely detained. And at some point, the Spanish government just took all the specimens back. They just, they, they took them, they wanted, they said, the reason was, they said that this, this hard work um, won't be appreciated there. And, and with all the unrest, they could be destroyed. But it's also, you know, entirely possible that they wanted to disrupt this activity because it was part of a nation-building institution, and because it may also have been a, a, you know, a hotbed for training, you know, revolutionaries. Who knows? <laughs> but when the specimens were brought back, they were put in a storeroom. Nobody looked at them, and it really wasn't for, you know, a century, a century later, that anyone found them. So, you know, there's there's lots of reasons, even our own in our own country. You know, the most the expedition that everyone knows about is Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark. Yeah. So what they, happened with those specimens? Well, they, they were trained. Uh, at, it was Thomas Jefferson's request that they make specimens. He made sure they were trained by one of the you know most knowledgeable botanists at the time. And they made beautiful, well-documented specimens. 
Um, some were lost when they put them in a cache over winter on the trip, but they sent back two other major shipments. And they fell to a, a man, uh, a German man named Frederick Persch to identify. And he, he did do some. Again, they were mostly things that no one had ever seen before. So it was a lot of work to go through them and name them. And he did a few. And then he lost. He, he decided to go back to Europe. He, he ended his time in the U.S. Without telling anyone, he took the remainder of the Lewis and Clark specimens with him. And when he got to England, he continued to to work on them and made a major publication and described some 70 species. Um, but then when he was done with them, he gave them to his mentor, a wealthy Englishman, and they became part of that man's herbarium, Almer Lambert. And it, the only way they came back to the United States, at least this part of them, was that an American botanist named Tuckerman um, happened to, Edward Tuckerman happened to be touring Europe at the time, saw that there was an auction of this. He was about to start a job at Amherst College, so he went and he bid on the American specimens. And when he got them, he found out, sure enough, there were some 47 Lewis and Clark specimens. So he studied lichens. He didn't want to keep the vascular plants, um, which is what all the Lewis and Clark specimens were. So he gave them to the American Philosophical Society, which had been the intended repository all along. Well done. <laughs> But those for, for, again, for almost a century, those 47 were the only ones that they thought were remaining. And it just by chance in the, in about in the 1890s, I think, someone was poking around in a storeroom and they found these bundles. The specimens were exactly as they had been sent and they'd just been tucked away. So I guess what it says, it says a couple things that the documentation part of collections expeditions is, is the hard work. And often it's not something that can be done easily. It's not the exciting part. The exploration is the exciting part, you know. So I've always loved the collectors that, you know, went the whole distance. <laughs> not only <laughs> made the collections, but made sure when they got back that they were preserved for other people to use and that they were, you know, as completely documented as they could be. But that has not been, you know, the case for a lot. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I'm... I, I, with, with my expeditions for ethnobotanical collections, I'm, I try and prioritize that when I get back is, is really making sure that we have good IDs, but I, I do have a naughty closet of, of a stack of things that are like awaiting identification still. I, I hope to resolve someday. Um, yeah, yeah, everybody does. We have a huge, we probably at the New York Botanical Garden, we probably have 35,000 specimens from our expeditions and we go through them regularly um, and for the most part there just isn't anybody at this time who can study them we keep them hoping in the future that they will be they're certainly not forgotten about but yeah. every place has got a backlog for sure yeah so this seems to be a recurring theme over histories we have this you know, immense amount of work that goes into the preparation of these specimens. And the older the specimen is, the more valuable it is. But yet the expense and the amount of care that goes into these on the back end following exploration, sometimes we come up short. And is this a problem that still continues today? Are these types of natural history collections well supported to maintain basically an ever-growing, um, you know, base of material? Yeah, it's a major concern. It probably really always has been. The the herbaria represent, you know, like libraries do, 
the documentation part of science. It's not where the flashy discoveries are made. Those are generally done in the laboratory or in the field. Um, there's, this is though where the, the results reside and make it possible to sort of have the, the, the building blocks of science that, that each new uh, researcher builds on. Um, and so it has always been hard to support these resources because the support is really in perpetuity. You know, you can never stop. Um, herbaria, for example, uh, don't require huge expense once you're set up. They, they're steel cabinets in a, in, a, in a room where the climate should be controlled within kind of reasonable limits. Um, and the cost of adding each one you know, until the cabinets fall, at least, um, is, is not a huge additional cost. It doesn't require a lot of technology to do it, but it is a forever cost and, you know, can never, ever stop taking care of the specimens. The types of things, the types of maintenance that they need is they need to be shifted around every now and then. As you add new things, cabinets get overcrowded. When the specimens are overcrowded, they tend to break. Um, pests, insect pests are a huge problem, mm. worse in areas with high humidity, but a problem everywhere. They have to be constantly monitored for, uh, for, for pest damage. Um, and then as names change over time, they have to be moved around to reflect modern classifications. It's a huge job and it's usually the arrangement in Herbaria lags a little bit behind you know, the most recent concept of how things should be named and to reflect their relationships. But eventually it has to be done because no one can find anything anymore. So the, you know, the work, and also even those herbarium specimens are pretty durable. They fall off the sheet, they break, they, the labels come off. So there's always maintenance to be done. And yeah, it, it's, it, I'm not sure there's ever really been a time when all herbaria had all the funds they wanted. I think they have always struggled. Um, yeah. But but I do think right now in the pandemic time, we're especially worried. Um, some surveys that have done have indicated that, and this is all natural history collections, that maybe as many as a, of a third of the natural history collections that exist now don't really know if they'll survive the pandemic time. Um, among the staff that were cut at museums um, to, to kind of get through this difficult time, curatorial collections management staffs were that was the was the category for, that was cut the most. Mm -hmm. So um, we worry all the time, and collections collections do come and go. Um, um, I manage the index of um, the herbaria of the world, and for example, interestingly, in this past year. Um, about 17 herbaria were reported as no longer existing. Now, the specimens weren't thrown away. They were given to other herbaria. But at the same time, about 80 herbaria were newly registered, so they continue to form as well. So it's a fluid and ongoing um, activity. It isn't really just something from the past. The bulk of the new herbaria that form are in developing countries, um, but not all. There, there are some in the United States and in Europe as well. Yeah, well, and can you give us an idea about the the relative difference in size of herbaria? What are sure. on the small end versus the larger end? How many specimens might be right. in an herbarium? The largest herbarium in the world is the Royal Botanic Gardens Q. And then it's that's about eight million specimens, a little over eight 
8,125,000. And um, Paris has 8 million. And the New York Botanical Garden has 7.9 million. So there's there's some that are very, Pretty very close. Yeah. And yeah. honestly, none of us know exactly how many specimens we have. So <laughs> we're all just making our best guess. But then there are herbaria that have as few as, you know, a couple hundred ones that have just started. Um, generally, the, the the average, if you were to take an average of all the world's herbarium, I think the size would be about maybe 40 to 50,000 specimens. Um, and they have very different purposes. The large herbaria are where you would turn if you are looking for those old historic specimens, if you're looking for um, specimens from a wide range of places around the world, uh, especially important, if, again, like my cactus example, if you're looking to write a description of every cactus plant that's ever existed, you, you definitely use a, a big herbarium. But the small herbaria that, are, that tend to be regional are extremely important too, because they reflect usually deep concentration on a fairly, fairly small area over time. A university herbarium like yours probably represents, or at least did at one point, yearly field trips by a class that went out and collected. And they may, they didn't come up with new species every year or, or maybe ever, but they, they are giving a very good and detailed record of plant life in, in your area. And that can be extremely important in trying to understand change that's already happened and change that might happen in the future. Oh, absolutely. We, I, that's exactly the case. There's some nice specimens um, from the southeast in the collection, including ones from locations that no longer support plant life because sure. dams have been built and they've been, you know, flooded or, you know, now it's a large parking lot yeah. <laughs> over where it was before. Um, we've even had some specimens that were used in um, getting a, a, a unique environment, granite rock outcrop environment of Arabia Mountain um, established as a national, um, as a heritage site. And so, um, yeah, I think regional herbaria can be really um, important in that aspect. Um, and as you said, you know, I think this challenge of, of funding will continue to plague all of us in the natural history community and museum community. And the, the level of training is really um, incredible to become a well-trained taxonomist. Mm -hmm. And um, can you tell us a bit about what does it take to become a taxonomist? And why is this field, which seems in some ways to become, become like it's becoming almost a forgotten part of biology. Um, yeah. Why is it so important um, for us you know, to be able to identify and recognize life, especially during this period of climate change and species loss. Right. Well, in terms of training, um, a, a taxonomist today, a student, will most likely focus on a group of plants where they can address evolutionary questions. They may address some questions um, related to the development of, of particular features that a plant group shows, how, how those may have evolved, what their ecological importance may be. Um, it will also um, involve um, understanding at both the molecular level and at the, um, the whole plant level, the, 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 the macro level, about how each one differs you know, from the other. And that involves doing a lot of lab work, grinding up material, doing DNA sequencing, but it also involves looking at a lot of herbarium specimens, looking, looking at past work and seeing how specimens were treated previous or species were described previously, 
what almost everyone finds when they do a modern treatment where they look at a whole lot of, of specimens, they find that the limits between species that have been used are, you know, maybe not so great. So they end up th deciding either that there are more or fewer species than previously um, than people had. And the molecular data often is very good at helping to, to elucidate that. So they look at a lot of specimens. They probably do a lot of collecting, too. So they observe them in the field, make their own specimens. They learn those skills. And um, then they have the, the job of sort of compiling all of this, which is the, the effort to, to describe a plant so that someone else can imagine it without seeing it is, yeah. is something that takes a great deal of practice. It is, it is probably the hardest thing about being a taxonomist and, and writing a description. It takes forever to do it. And if you have to look at a lot of specimens, you have to make sure that all of your ranges reflect the whole, the, all the specimens that you look at. Um, and, and, um, and then, you know, I think that takes so much time. In my experience watching students is that, that there's so much work that needs to go into getting the plants in your head so that you understand how they're related to one another. Um, that, you know, when you, you may not get the wide range of laboratory experience or other skills that you would have if you were working purely in a lab, in a lab setting where the results come fairly quickly. You have a lot of deep knowledge, but that may not be so much what an employer is looking for, you know. Um, and so there are a lot of clever and very just brilliant students of systematics today. What they're tending to do is maybe work on slightly smaller plant groups, but trying to do a lot of other things, trying to involve mm -hmm. a lot of, of other knowledge, whether it's ecological, again, or genetic or plant-animal interactions with pollinators or parasites or so forth, so that their portfolio of skills when they go out on the job market is mm -hmm. a lot broader. Um, and that okay. strategy seems to be working. Um, it's true that there are many fewer people who can identify plants around. We see that um, we keep a list of specialists of plant groups all over the world. And Every few months we revise it, and usually what we do is take off somebody who's retired or passed away. We don't add a lot of new names. So mm -hmm. that's definitely a skill that's being lost. Um, the, the trick is, you know, how to train people who can get positions so that they can continue to do this work, yeah. continue to train students, but have the breadth of knowledge. And that's that's really the hardest part, um, because the only way you get to know plants is to see a whole lot of them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that takes time. It just takes a lot of time. Well, in your book, you profile a lot of really um, impactful collectors. And I was wondering, do you have a particular favorite from history that just their story really inspired you? Well, it'd be hard not to select Alice Eastwood. Um, Alice Eastwood lived in the 1800s. She was born in Canada, but grew up in Denver. And she was an extremely bright young woman. But, and she was the valedictorian of her high school class. But 
because her family, um, her mother had died when she was young. She was raised by her father who never succeeded at business and she needed to go to work to support the family. So she became a school teacher, but she devoted all of her free time to botanizing in the Rockies. And she became very well known as a guide um, for people who wanted to go climb the, you know, the peaks. Um, and she also knew the plants and wrote prolifically and lectured on them. She even took Alfred Russell Wallace um, when he visited Denver. Here is this famous South American explorer. She took him to the to the summit of Gray's Peak, named for Asa Gray, uh, to botanize. Wow. And um, so she did that on her free time. But then, luckily enough, she and her father sold some property where their original home had been in downtown Denver. And when she sold the property, she made enough money that she didn't have to teach anymore. Um, she had made a trip to San Francisco um, on a vacation, I suppose, a few years earlier. And she had met um, a woman named Kate Brandegee, who was the first curator of botany at the California Academy of Sciences. Um, the California Academy of Sciences was probably the first institution in the world that put in its charter that it welcomed the contributions of women uh, into wow. to their field. So they hired this um, amazing woman, Kate Brandegee, and she met Kate and they were they had a, they hit it off. And so when Alice, um, you know, found her freedom from teaching, she, she moved to California and um, took up the job as curator, which left Kate and her husband free to explore. And that's what they really loved to do. So um, I guess as much as the Brandegees were great botanists and they loved um, plant collecting, they weren't the best curators, but Alice was. And so she revised the collection. She spent her own money to build the library. She went on extensive expeditions and she really made a name for herself. But she, um, she, her real, what everybody knew her for at the time was in the time of the San Francisco earthquake in 1906. She uh, was, um, she woke up that day and where she lived, the, the, her, the, the damage from the earthquake wasn't so bad. So she went to work as normal. When she got downtown where the academy was in those days, it was just insane. The buildings were on fire. People were running essentially for their lives. But she was determined to rescue what she could from the herbarium. So she pushed past all the police and everybody else trying to keep her up. The stairway had collapsed, but it's, the banister was intact. So she kind of hand over hand climbed up the banister. <laughs> and she, she took the type specimens, which she had segregated. She was one of the first person to take these most valuable yes. specimens and segregate them. And she what's the type the, specimen, too, oh, for the audience? Sorry. Sure. So every time someone names a species for the first time, they have to pick one specimen that represents it. It's a voucher. It's for that. representative. So that's, mm -hmm. the, that's the specimen to which a name is always attached. So if you really want to study a plant and know what it is, you almost always have to at some point refer to that type specimen. Mm -hmm. And uh, once they're gone, you have nothing but a description to base it. So she'd already pulled them aside so that in thinking that if there's ever a fire, this is what I can save. But she put them in a big kind of an iron case and there was no way she was going to get that out of this building. So she wrapped them in, in a big tarp somehow and lowered it to the ground. And then she got out and she she somehow commandeered a horse-drawn carriage to drive her away with this specimen. <laughs> That's amazing. 1,500 type specimens and she saved her her lens, it wasn't really a microscope, but her kind of like a glorified magnifying glass. That was what she saved. And later her own home burned up. Um, and so she she had nothing. So 
while the academy was rebuilding, she worked in other places and continued. And then when it opened up again, she said, she had said at the time, you know, it's a tragedy, but I can, I had fun collecting the first time and I'll have fun doing it again. And she yeah. built the herbarium up to 300,000 specimens again before she died. Wow, she lived incredible. a long time. She was honored at a botanical congress in in Stockholm, and I don't remember the year, but but she she's they put her in Linnaeus's chair and honored her for her accomplishments. Wow. Um, and she she was given many times she was offered the the possibility to call herself Dr. Eastwood, you know, an honorary PhD. But she said, no, I don't need a PhD to do this work. You just have to work hard. <laughs> She also devised a type of skirt, a split skirt, so that she could go in the fields, you know, and, and bend over and not be constricted. And and when women would say to her, oh, I just don't know how you can get away with, with, with you know, the, the things you wear and the way you look. She said, she was quoting Emerson roughly and saying, if you scorn convention, you always can. <laughs> <laughs> she sounds like quite a character. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful person. She's definitely my favorite. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I wanted to bring up another woman from from a little bit further back who captured my interest because of her history as an herb woman, as a healer in yes. France. And that's Jean Beret, the yeah. first woman to circumnavigate the globe. And she right. had to do it in disguise as a man. Can you tell us a bit? I mean, these yeah. stories, they should make movies about these. Yeah, They're just they so should. fascinating. They are only, we, you know, we, we, I wish we knew more of the specifics about Jean Beret's life. There's not a huge record because it was a long time ago. And she was, as you say, just an herb woman. She was a peasant woman who was a little bit better off than, than many peasants because she had the skill and she could sell her, her plants. And through that work, probably she came to know a botanist by the name of Philippe Comerson, who, whose estate was near where she lived. And, um, and uh, one way or another, they became lovers. And um, after his wife died, she moved with him to Paris and they began a joint botanical enterprise. Um, and he would go in Paris to the herbarium and work. And I guess then she would do the work at home. And they they were a very devoted couple and they had a uh, had quite a good botanical bit of teamwork going on. So he was offered the opportunity to go on a French expedition. This was really the first major French exploring expedition under the command of a man named Bougainville. And this was meant to go around the, the world collecting natural history specimens. And Comerson was chosen as the botanist. And um, was he, this the, when was this exactly? This was in the 1760s. Seven, 1760s, yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just before the French Revolution, actually. Um, and um, there was a huge sense in Paris, you know, the Enlightenment period, that we should mm. we should push back the frontiers of knowledge. Also, France had lost a lot of its external territories during um, during wars with England and so forth. So they were really they were looking for knowledge. They were also looking for new territory to, to claim. Um, but anyway, Comerson was chosen as the botanist and he wanted Jean Beret to come along. But 
women were not allowed on uh, on expeditions on ships. There was a huge amount of superstition about having a woman on board, and um, the, you know there were certainly no private quarters or anything. So they they conceived of a plan where she would dress up as a as a man, and and he was allowed to bring uh, an assistant. So he he went on board. He conducted interviews. She came dressed as a man. He selected her as his assistant, <laughs> Jean. Instead of Jean, she was uh, Jean, and um, and they you know she she dressed. It was horrible for her. She yeah. um, she bound her breasts in linen rags, and then in the heat of that, she developed terrible sores. Wow. Um, she had all kinds of problems with the crew. You know, she um, uh, she she had to, you know, when she wanted to urinate or something, she had to try to get away from everybody. I mean, it was it was terrible. Mm-hmm. And they lived in close quarters. But she was an amazing physical. She had a, a great, amazing physical strength and perseverance and obviously a huge amount of determination. And I mean, Comerson. He was a great botanist, but he seemed like, from what you read about him, sort of a wet blanket. He was always complaining about things. He didn't feel well. He thought the doctor of the expedition was trying to kill him. And <laughs> it was just sort of a, an, an ongoing set of complaints. And he ended up not being the one to really do the field work. It was her who carried mm. the heavy equipment, climbed the mountains, made the specimens. And um, they kept up the subterfuge, though, we think, um, until Fiji. Now, there's one funny thing that happened in Brazil. Um, for some reason, Comerson was 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 confined to ship, was punished for a month, and so for the month in Brazil, she did all the field work on herself. And it's it's speculated that maybe the captain found out about this. Um, ah, and have, punished him that, then. Mm-hmm. Maybe. But we don't really know. Anyway, they got all the way to Fiji before it was generally known that she was a woman. And um, it was terrible for her after that. She was raped. um, And uh, she basically withdrew from all of the the expedition activities. And the expedition, you know, went on. Uh, Not many collections made after Fiji until they got to Mauritius. And when they got to Mauritius... Um, the captain said that Comerson and Beret would leave the expedition. And a lot of it had to do with the fact she was pregnant at that point. And there was no way that when they got back to France that this was going to pass unnoticed. And he was looking forward to all the all of the accolades, you know, the, of his yeah, accolades mm-hmm. that would come. So, so he didn't want anything to get in the way of that. So he put them off with their specimens. But they actually formed an association with a very interesting man, a man named Pierre Poivre, who was the uh, administrator of the colony, but also a botanist and agriculturalist, and who was really, even at that stage in the 1700s, quite concerned about what deforestation was doing to the island of Mauritius. So he saw a great imperative in collecting. And so for the next several years, they continued to collect with him and Mauritius all the way over to uh, Mozambique and so forth. And in many ways, those were the best years in terms of collections. But eventually, Comerson died. He, he really was in poor health. And when he died, everything ended for Jean Beret. No more place to live, no more work. She was basically just thrown out on her ear. But being the resourceful person she was, she went into the capital of Mauritius. She she established a tavern and set up a business. And um, a few years later, she met a retired French um, sailor 
and married him and then moved back home with him to France, where she actually had a pension. She was her, her her trip was recognized by the French government, who gave her a pension for her service. And they lived happily in a beautiful area of southern France in Bordeaux um, uh, for the rest of their lives. And uh, as I went to see her grave, I, I learned oh, that her wow. grave was was um, was marked and well cared for. So I went to see it. And sure enough, in the little town nearby, there's actually a map uh, of the town and shows the graveyard and indicates that Jean Beret is buried there. And when you go, you see a lovely little, um, like a storyboard of her life. And it's clear that people from all over France bring little offerings, plants and little plant sculptures. So it's very mm -hmm. sweet. She's one of my great, my great heroines. And, you know, they, they made some 30,000 natural history collections on that trip. It's wow. by far the, the largest um, and 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 most completely documented. You'll never find um, Barre's name on any of the labels. They all say Comerson. The most the most sort of emblematic plant is of course Bougainvillea, which they yeah. collected in Brazil, and of course named for the captain. And that's a plant that everybody knows because it's grown everywhere. Well, every time I see it, it's that beautiful, showy, purple, climbing. Gorgeous. I, I always think of Jean yeah. when I see that plant. <laughs> That's how it should be. <laughs> yeah. And and if if I if I recall correctly, uh, Pierre that they met in Mauritius is this the same Peter of Peter Piper yeah. picked a pack of pickled I peppers? So. I like, there's an so. interesting in line there with the spice trade, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, Pierre Poivre, you know, his friend's name translates in English to Peter Pepper. <laughs> Um, and Piper is the scientific name of Pepper. And um, he his task was to find, you know, sources of of food items that people in, in, in France wanted, Pepper being one of them. And it just so happened that in those days, Pepper was usually not dried. It was preserved. It was pickled for transport, green peppercorns transport back to, to France. So the idea is that Peter Piper picked a pickled, pickled peppers is based on, on, um, on Pierre Poivre. He's, it's, he's, he's the origin of that, of that uh, tongue twister. That's great. That's great. Well, there's, there's so many amazing stories around the history of botany, the history of collections. And I think human, you know, the human desire to find new sources of new sources of medicines, mm -hmm. um, new plants, not only for their beauty, but also their utility and also just plants um, to understand the diversity of life. And I definitely encourage the audience to check out um, Barbara's new book, Herbarium. And where where can they find that? And it, has it been released yet? Yeah, it's um, it's available. Um, it has been released. It was published last month. It's available from Barnes & Noble, from Amazon, um, a variety of of shops and yeah. on your botanical garden uh, shop in the garden sells it. So yeah, you, you can order it pretty easily. That's great. And where can they find uh, more information on your work? Is there a website for the herbarium that you yeah. curate? Mm -hmm. the, the, the New York Botanical Gardens website um, uh, has a section, a whole section about the herbarium. And, and there's, you know, more, more information about me too there. Um, but yeah, we have quite a few pages. 
One, one thing audience members might especially like is we have a feature on our website called the hand lens, which is where we tell stories based on a specimen or a set of specimens. So we might pick out a specimen of a plant that was collected by George Washington Carver and tell that story, or many more obscure figures, um, people who you wouldn't expect collected plants, but who did, or plants that represent um, plants that are important for um, religious or spiritual or um, or just our, you know, our traditions. We always do, you know, Christmas one with all the plants that are associated with Christmas. So we try to tell, we we try to add 20 or 30 of these new stories a year, just a short paragraph or two about a plant, hopefully telling people something they might not have thought about, about that plant or plants in general before. That sounds fascinating. I'll have to check that out. Well, sure. thank you so much, Barbara, for coming sure. on the show. It was a pleasure having you. It was great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Now in season more than 70 episodes available to you for free on all major podcast streaming services. You can check out our website at foodiepharmacology.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at foodiepharma. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.